Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. Hello, my name's Jess Phillips and this is Yours Sincerely. I've always been a prolific letter writer, both the good and bad kind, and know the power of putting words to paper. So in this podcast, I want to give my guests a chance to celebrate three people that mean the world to them. Someone they love, someone who's no longer around, and someone who doesn't realise how significant a role they've played in their lives. And when we've heard more about each person they'll reveal how they would sign off each letter. Tim Walker is a playwright, broadcaster and journalist who wrote the acclaimed play Bloody Difficult Women. Today I'm excited to talk to him about the letters he would send to three people who mean the world to him. Hello Tim, how are you? I'm very well, thank you Jess. Very many thanks for having me on. Oh, very many thanks for coming on. And now, I mean, I feel like I have to precursor this so it doesn't sound offensive... People who come on this podcast who are older than 35 are usually people who are either still currently quite keen letter writers or they used to be. So which one of those are you? Oh, I still write letters. And what's more, I use a good old fashioned ink pen. And I remember I was on the Telegraph when we went over to the new technology. And suddenly a lot of us suddenly started using ink pens. And there was a guy, a nice man called Ben Brogan. And he said to me, it's a conscious act of rebellion against where this wretched trade of ours is going. And I think everything started to go wrong at the Telegraph, maybe in journalism generally, when we headed off into into the direction of new technology. I have a rather eccentric younger child who collects old media. So he has tape players and record players and records. Uh, He's only 13. But somebody yesterday, his nan's mate Kerry came around and she had an old typewriter. And so she gave it to him. And so today I had to, it had no ribbon on it. I had to go (laughs) to, I mean, because Birmingham is so delightfully close to the black country, which it would appear to me from today's visit to Stourbridge is literally, unironically, still in 1988. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I went to this typewriter specialist today and, like I said, they, they gave me a receipt, you know, on old fax paper that, like, they printed it on that old paper with the holes down it. Like, I couldn't believe it. And they were they fixed up the, the thing, but they were bemoaning new technology in their 1988 typewriter warehouse. It was brilliant. 
I've been newsrooms now at very boring places. In the old days, you'd hear the clatter of the typewriters, the deadline approaching. Now it always feels like the Halifax Building Society on a dull Tuesday <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, you need to move your newsrooms to Starbridge because <laughs> it's Starbridge. And then we went to a jukebox shop. I mean, I, I was like that. Is it, are there any modern shops in Starbridge? <laughs> uh, it was... It, it was, but you know, it wasn't even like the woman in the shop, woman called Sharon, probably in her late fifties. Where I live, or certainly in London, such a shop would now be there would be a sort of tongue-in-cheek element, or like you know, all Netflix dramas or anything use like old, um, like green screen, old word processor style graphics. Like it's a nod to the to a retro idea not not in Starbridge it's as if it's completely normal it was brilliant I absolutely loved it uh, I've taken photos as if I was like a tourist there is a place in the Black Country called the Black Country Museum and I just it's unnecessary just go down Starbridge High Street and you don't need a living museum from the past so I'm all for the old media today. And I think it's still appropriate. I mean, particularly if you're sending a letter of condolence or, you're, you know, you're, somebody's just got married or something. It, it should be a, a, a letter. It shouldn't be a text. I think some things are too important. And you also need to collect your thoughts, which you can in a letter. You can't in a text. Or no, I think, what's I that think, message? Yeah, it's too instant, isn't it? Mm. Um, sometimes, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think if somebody's... If there's some big life event, you have, like, writing with your hand, like, a pen and paper, writing it means way, way more. Like, if my kids sent me, like, a happy birthday email, I'd be like, piss off, that's not acceptable. <laughs> I mean, I'm now going to get it typewritten in either black or red ink, because it, it does both, you'll be pleased to hear. Um, although he hasn't learned how to go on to the next line, so he just... Kept writing over the top when he was doing it. <laughs> Although I have to say, people who send me letters that are written on a typewriter are usually quite eccentric. I didn't know what the polite way to say about people who write me letters on a typewriter, but they have the whiff of somebody who's cut pictures out of a magazine to... <laughs> To send you a ransom note. They've got a whiff of that, the typewritten letter. Um, so you're still a keen letter writer. Do you have any really uh, particular letters of note, like letters that you've kept forever? I still have letters from editors when I was a little boy wanting to get into journalism. And oddly enough, this might surprise you, but the, the, the one who was the kindest and the sweetest, and he did admittedly sign his letters in green ink, was a guy called David English, who was editor of the Daily Mail. But English wrote me the sweetest letters and he told me to get on to a National Council for the Training of Journalists course. He didn't seem remotely bothered that I was as thick as anything and I only had about two O-levels. He said, just get on to this course, anybody can be a journalist. And he was very sweet and very kind to me, actually, throughout my career. I like that somebody called English, it seems like nominative determinism that they would end up at the mail, but in fact, <laughs> uh, they were, uh, you know, an internationalist, uh, unlike Paul Dacre, so... Who figures, not that I want to plug my 
my play, Bloody Difficult Women at the Edinburgh Fringe, but he figures in the play. And I hate to say it, I kind of wanted this play to be a kind of love letter to Gina Miller. It ended up being redirected in the post and going to Paul Dacre because all the critics said, the star of your show, Andrew Woodle as Paul Dacre, that's one of the great stage monsters. And needless to say, and it also shows, by the way, how journalists are now turning into the establishment. They're now public figures. Theresa May couldn't care less about the play. Gina Miller, mildly sort of concerned about it, but didn't dream of asking to see it or interfere in any way with it. Paul Dacre alone from the legal department of the Daily Mail, demanding to see the script. And I said, look, mate, if you give me copy approval of of the review you're going to write, I'll give you copy approval of the script. (laughs) And, you know, it's just not done. We should not be so thin skinned in journalism. And I was shocked, shocked, I tell you, that he, he was demanding to see the script. Yeah, that is uh, very, very thin-skinned, snowflakey behaviour. Prob- he'd probably call it. What a snowflake! A very close relative of his, a member of his immediate family, in fact, came to see the play. And as Andrew Woodle, who plays Dacre, was leaving one night, he said to him, "I just want you to know, you know, that you you, you were portraying a member of my family." And poor and Andrew Woodle turned round, expecting to be punched, and he said, "Well, the one thing I'd say is, he'd never drink, he'd never drink whiskey, he'd, he'd drink red wine." <laughs> I thought, I've got him. Fair enough. That's it. (laughs) That is brilliant. Um, Right then. So I have asked you to think of three different people you would want to write letters to. And the first one is the person who means the world to you. So who would that be? Oh, I think every man would say this, every woman, I'm sure this, but my mother was a saint. And if there's any good... I I mean, I don't think my kids would say I was a saint. (laughs) (laughs) The tragedy is we never really appreciate mothers enough when when they live. We appreciate them after they've gone, as sadly my own mother has. And you see a life in perspective. You know, you see a whole life. And I do see a genuinely saintly person. She was an extraordinary woman in that, I remember one afternoon watching a film on the TV called The Sunshine Boys. It was all, it was about vaudevillians and it was all about, it starred Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon. And my mother sort of casually said, oh, that's me, that old black and white bit at the beginning of the film. That's me. Anyway, it then turned out, to my astonishment, she'd been a a kind of child star in the 1920s in Hollywood. After she died, I found all these scrapbooks in the attic. She was a a, a bridesmaid at the wedding of Douglas Fairbanks Jr. and, and Joan Crawford. There were pictures of her with George Bernard Shaw. Anyway, I found all this quite extraordinary. Um, but it also explains her a lot because she then got married when she was very young. The war, of course, ended the career. So she came over back to the UK and she'd basically been spotted by a Hollywood talent scout. And so she'd made all these Hollywood films. But she then thought, OK, wars began. I need to head back back to the UK, back to Britain. She got married when she was still a teenager and she just started having babies. We weren't Catholics or anything, but she decided to have seven babies, one after the other. She enjoyed motherhood very much. But because she'd never had an education as such, she was always educated on film sets and so forth. And then she'd got married. She'd never had what we all have in our lives, the awful sort of authority 
you know, bearing down at us, whether it's at school, whether it's in our jobs and so forth. And it made her a completely free spirit. And, you know, she'd tell people if she didn't like them, you know, immediately that she didn't like them. She she had very strong views in her later years uh, before she died about David Cameron, who she thought was loathsome and a complete phony. And I think some of that rubbed off on me, perhaps, and has made me a slightly difficult person in my own way. But she was she was adorable. I mean, I would often I you know, go through teenage angst and everything, and I would shriek at her sometimes, you know, as children do. And she'd always just completely ignore me and say, "Well, look, shall we watch the tennis or go for a swim or you know?" And and I think that was very good for me. And she enjoyed winding me up. She often said to me when a guy called Richard Eden was editing the Mandrake column on the Telegraph, she'd say, it's awfully good, you know. And I, she'd know I wasn't doing it. She'd say, I think it's got really good. And and then one night she said, I don't want to cause any, you know, I don't want to get you into bad habits. But she said, I notice you're not drinking this weekend. And I have to say, you're very boring when you don't drink. And And I was always getting this kind of stuff from her. But she was funny and she was witty. She was passionately loyal. You know, I could go off on a murdering spree and she'd still be on my side and and say that they all deserved it. And even on her deathbed, she kept looking at me and saying, be happy. That's all she said. And I just thought it was the most beautiful life, really. And to end with the words, be happy, I thought was, was very touching. And as I say, if there's anything in me that's remotely human, I've got it from her. And I thought she was a lovely person, really. She didn't care about stardom. You know, she didn't care about being an actress or whatever, which I thought was fascinating. She just thought all of that was a bit vulgar um, and never really talked about it. She'd had a very interesting, interesting early life, really. Funnily enough, my mother, when she was uh, dying, she was dying in the hospital that David Cameron came to visit because it was a, the you, uh, one of the... It was the first year they did the leadership debates, wasn't it? The Brown, Cameron, Clegmania. And they did it at Birmingham University. And he came uh, for a visit around uh, Birmingham University Hospital, which is where she was having her treatment. And they said, oh, you know, they came in and said, you know, he's going to come through here. We'll introduce him to people. And my mum, who was a civil servant in the Department of Health uh, and a staunch socialist raised by a Bolshevik, she just was like, I'm already dying. I don't think that I deserve this. I'm going to die. Uh, like, I, I don't really want to have a... I don't really want a glad hand that the man who might be the Prime Minister. So, no, no thanks. And just decline the offer of David Cameron visiting her... Uh... I think our mothers would have got on very well, actually. It's funny. <laughs> mothers are very wise. They can always see through phoniness, can't they? Yeah. And God almighty, weren't they right about him? Yeah, well, quite, quite uh, indeed. The way just sort of pissed off although i mean i suppose now just pissing off is something that i sort of miss when people resign from things um but uh yeah it, it just he'd never faced a risk in his life i think is the problem with david cameron he'd never he, he'd never actually taken a risk that didn't go his way because of his life and he thought he, he thought he knew it, knew it all and he didn't. And that was a tragedy, really. And he'd not done his time in the party. It doesn't really matter what party it is. You need to do your time in it and see how things work. And it all happened too quickly for him. And you... And, and he and he was a gambler. You don't take risks and gambles in the way that he did with all of our futures. Especially when he didn't even agree with it. Like, uh, it was... That is what's the sort of Greek tragedy-esque of, of the... Cameron reign is that he he fiercely 
wanted us to stay in the European Union, and he is the absolute author of it not happening. He he was a ridiculous character, really. And I think, too, he annoyed people. There's something about him. And I think an awful lot of people, and you heard it a lot during the referendum campaign, wanting to give, give him a bloody nose. And of course he doesn't. He ends up in his garden shed, writing his memoirs, making vast amounts of money or trying to out of Greenstone Capital. And I think that was a tragedy of it. We didn't, you know, a lot of people thought they were punishing people, but they weren't. They were, unfortunately, been taken in by the lies and they ended up punishing themselves. I mean, my, my husband, who is an enormous Europhile, like works on a building site throughout um, the whole Brexit votes issue. And we used to sort of like try and wind his uh, mates up by saying things like, you know, I think we should be in a European army. I'm for the European single currency. Like he's like full in. He's like, he's, he's so far gone the other way. I remember him finding it really difficult when the vote was being cast because he didn't want to be on David Cameron's side. He was like, I feel like I'm voting with David Cameron and that doesn't feel comfortable to me. Uh, obviously he did vote to stay in the European Union but it, he definitely he the way it was all presented it, he wanted to give him a bloody nose you're absolutely right about that He that's definitely was his sense of feeling about it. So yeah well your mum was right about David Cameron uh, what was your mum's name? Claudine uh, Claudine oh Walker. what a great name she's got the name of a broad of a Hollywood broad oh exactly she was you know and her, her, it was in the days when parents could be very vain and her father was called Claude and so she decided he did, Claudine Morby was her, her sort of stage name but you know I mean Nigel Lawson of course called his daughter Nigella sometimes it can get a bit ridiculous uh, you know I, I don't think I'd ever have a Timothea as a daughter you can't go too far <laughs> <laughs> I um I was a support worker for a woman with Alzheimer's and her name was Keitha because her dad was called Keith. Gotcha. It, it, it's bad enough for a man to be called Keith. <laughs> but it's the ultimate vanity. It's typical male vanity again. Yeah, it is. Claude, but Claudine is a great name. Claudine name. and Anna Claude. I mean, both are good, but Claudine... It sounds, that sounds very Hollywood. That sounds like somebody would smoke a cigarette with their... With oh, alcohol. exactly. People, which she did, I think. But the, the reality is you, you just don't get names like that anymore. You don't even, people aren't even called Olive anymore. You just don't, I miss right. people Although like I think that. it's coming back. Really? Mm. Olive, I think Olive might come back. You heard it here first. I think Olive <laughs> might come back. The liberal elite have run out of names. So there's enough Olivia's. Now we're going to Olive. Um, I'm telling you, mark my words, I reckon Olive is back. I guarantee nobody will ever call a son Boris again. It's a bit like Adolf. Some names go kind of out of fashion for one reason or another. That is absolutely true that nobody's going to call their kid Boris, I don't think. I mean, some of these people who are signing a petition to say that he should continue to be the Prime Minister, uh, they they might. But, I mean, he's not even called Boris, is he? Let's be honest. Everything about him is false. Your mother, how old was she when she died? She was 90. To the very end, she went swimming in the English Channel. Um, she, you know, she, she, she was extraordinarily healthy and very, very fit. Um, she always insisted on having a drink after she'd had a swim. And she was quite extraordinary, really. Uh, I think cold water, interestingly enough, one of the odd things that I have in common in my, in my life with Alistair Campbell, the Barclay brothers, even though we're down to one of them now, and, and my mother, and who else, and me, and Alistair Campbell, is that the belief in cold water bathing, which I think is actually quite good for you. And I, I think it certainly is good for your immune system. There have been studies and so forth. So maybe she lived to be 90 because she, she bathed in cold water quite often. 
I, I mean, I'm going to die young then, I'm all, is all I'm going to say, because I'm such a baby about cold water. I'm like that, ugh, I can't even go in the lido. Near Brixton, I, I mean, I tried, I, I got one leg in and I was like, this is awful. But people tell me I should persevere, but... But to be honest, our government in its infinite wisdom is polluting the waters to such an extent now, I, I certainly wouldn't recommend my mother or indeed Alistair Campbell or any of us do it anymore than yeah, we have to. I, I saw uh, some terrible footage this morning of sewage going into the water where people are bathing. Like, ugh, horrible. My husband has a theory that everything is like, every news story that he hears, such as that one, is exactly the same. He can find the exact same one from the early 1980s when we were children. He said, we've reached the age where everything has just become totally cyclical. Like the Salman Rushdie thing. He was like that, I'm telling you, this is coming back round again. <laughs> like everything comes back round. So we've got like gang violence in Birmingham, it's come back round. We've got mass inflation. We've got the rising interest rates, uh, the Salman Rushdie thing, war in, in, in Europe. And it's just like, oh, oh my God, I'm gonna turn on the news and like Kylie will be number one with locomotion and it's just everything the end of neighbors neighbors became a big thing it's just like oh my god everything is happening again i've got a feeling of deja vu and the sewage is a is a good example because when i was a kid i remember all the stories about blackpool beach being like like horrendous to go and swim in you couldn't go and swim in blackpool beach um, so, yeah. I will be doing our homework by candlelight. The moment Boris Johnson said there would be no power cuts, and he said this some months ago, I stocked up in candles. I tell you, candles will be the new lavatory rolls if we can find them in the shops, because it'll be very dark. But there will be fights, I guarantee, over, over candles. I tell you what, middle class women are going to be all right because they've been buying up candles for the last decade. <laughs> Literally like a pair of socks these days. The amount of people who give me candles, I'm like that. I mean, I recently, I bought a candle for one of my friends and as a, we have like a whip round present and they were like, she really liked this. This candle was £90. I was like, like you, can't, you can't spend £90 on a candle. But apparently that is a nice thing. I don't understand. Oh, they're obscenely expensive. But, uh, you know, as I say, Boris Johnson made me stock up on them when he said it. I just knew there'd be, there'd be power cuts. <laughs> um, so how would you sign off your letter to the amazing sounding Claudine? I'd just say thank you. Um, I th and I wish I'd appreciated her more. You know, I think we always feel that. I, you know, I had a very good, very loving relationship with her. But I think, I mean, one of the tragedies of life is we spend an awful lot of our lives staring out of office windows windows, doing absolutely nothing, and and wasting time which we could be with people we love. And I, I suppose my only advice to people generally is still lucky enough to have their mothers, make the most of them um, and learn from them. And I, I've talked to a lot of people who during the pandemic ended up with their mothers or whatever, and they said it was terrific. You know, week in, week out, we get to know each other. And I think it's a very special and very unqualified love that you get from a mother, which, uh, which I think is terrific. And I think men now are, generally speaking, hopefully coming slightly more in touch with their emotions and so forth and can see it and appreciate it. I assume a lot of people in our politics now had terrible relationships with their mothers. And I think that's probably what's made them so emotionally stilted and horrific people to run our country. I mean, I don't want to blame the nation's mothers, but uh, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
so the second person I asked you to think about was somebody who's no longer here. So who would that be? Okay, Anthony Howard was a great journalist, editor of the New Statesman, number two on The Observer. He was a judge of the British Press Awards, the year I got an award. And he then got in touch with me and I was only virtually in, in my teens. And he said, would you like a job on The Observer? And my whole life, my whole career has really been made possible by random strangers saying yes to me. Uh, Tony Howard, he, he also gave uh, the significantly less famous Robert Harris his first break. And he wrote on to write Fatherland. I don't know what happened to him after that. But, you know, he, you know mainly he was known for discovering me. And what I like to... <laughs> What I liked about Tony, he was like an old sort of Galapagos turtle in a way, in that he would just sort of dispense wisdom quite sort of, you know, quite, quite sort of randomly. And I remember telling him once, I said, I've just got a job on the Daily Mail. I'm going to work for Nigel Dempster. And all my other friends were saying, congratulations, well done. And he'd say like, oh, God, why? And I think that's what a real friend should do. The other thing about me, I suppose I was sort of, I didn't really know. I hadn't really defined myself politically. I hadn't even thought about it. I mean, Labour would get in, the Conservatives would get in. The country fundamentally seemed to work in the way that perhaps it isn't now. And it, I, I seem relatively relaxed about politics. But one of the things, and people always look at me and they always think I look like a a Nazi officer in a 1950s black and white war film. And they always assume I'm probably a little bit to the right. But what was it? What I suddenly realised about my life, it was populated by people to the left. Anthony Howard was a good example. Kevin Maguire on the mirror, a very nice man. The first person, incidentally, after I left the Telegraph to phone me up and say, would you like to write a column for us in an election diary? And I think they both had a, had a view really about what socialism fundamentally should be about, which is when you fall off your horse, you help somebody back on. And whether it was Kevin or, or Tony Howard, you know, they were just trying to help me along. I don't really understand why. They must have seen some good in me deep down, despite some of the papers I worked for. And I I feel very sort of flattered and touched, really. I, I googled Anthony Howard the other day and I found that he'd done all these kind of films and that people were asking him about prime ministers that he, he thought were good. And it was to kind of it was an odd sort of thing, really, where he was trying to dispense wisdom in, to the to this guy who was going around interviewing similar people. And at one point there was a, a program marked Protégés. And I thought, oh, I'm going to watch this. I might be on it. And eventually he was going on needlessly about this little known author called Robert Harris. And then he said, oh, and there was somebody else. There was a guy called, oh, he said, he works on the Telegraph. He does a column called Mandrake. Um, oh, and he went outrageous. He clearly identified me. You know, it was enough there to know it was about me. He said I was a good bloke, but he couldn't remember my name. And I th and I thought maybe he was he thought that posthumously I might Google it and it might come up and it it would go to my head if he remembered who who I was or he may have well have come to the view I was a very forgettable person he couldn't remember my name but I thought it did me good that a voice from the grave <laughs> essentially giving me a slap in the face. I mean that's he sounds excellent I, either way it's excellent it's an excellent story uh, robert harris's daughter is my book editor from lena oh okay uh, so uh, they, they are a great family the other thing i loved about tony he always saw the humanity in politicians he you know he never got too close to them but he, he always saw the humanity of them and i suppose it must have been about 10 years that he died and i'd had a really good lunch with him and you know we were chatting away about his life and everything and then literally the 
very next day he died. The day after that, I got the thank you letter for the lunch. And then the day after that, I even got a Christmas card. So it was the most weird experience. But at his funeral, I mean, I looked around the, the church and there was Michael Heseltine. There was Betty Boothroyd. All the parties were represented. And, you know, it was clear, you know, I remember a mascara black and tear going down Betty Boothroyd's cheeks. And clearly people had loved him. There was something there that they liked and admired. And, he, you know, he taught me, I suppose, to keep my distance, to behave properly as a journalist and to try and, you know, just be sensible, really. And again, that is what makes me so sad about so many journalists now. And they all knew, we all knew what Boris Johnson was like. We all knew that, you know, Brexit was not a great idea. And too many members of my trade went along with that. And and I think this is why we have the tragedy that we have now. If only we'd had people like Tony Howard on the TV at the time, just talking common sense. I don't think we'd have got into this terrible mess. Yeah, I think that it's funny, like the idea that you can uh, respect the humanity. It's something that I obviously expect people to do with me is to respect the humanity of politicians. Um, but at, at, I think if anybody has broken that, it is Boris Johnson, because it is very, very, very difficult for me to understand his motivations beyond himself. And that so he is basically the caricature of a politician from a satire from the 1960s, 70s. This idea of a person whose only calculation is themselves is quite... It challenges my view that we should humanise people. Oh, I saw him uh, sort of develop uh, as a journalist to some extent at The Telegraph during the 12 years I worked there. He was one of the first, I think, to understand the internet. And, you know, sort of in, in my day, you, you'd, you'd be asked, you know, you'd be phoned up maybe by question time. They say, would you like you to go on? But often they'd ask you for an opinion. They say, I don't know, what do you think about Muslims or something? And I'd say, well, they're good ones, they're bad ones. It's just like any other faith. Whereas Johnson picked up quite quickly, you've got to say something extreme, like, you know, they're, t they're terrible for our country or whatever, to they them. And and he understood that you had to be extreme. And that was why he started writing all that stuff about, you know, Muslim women and it looking like letterboxes and all of that repulsive racist stuff that started coming out of his mouth. He, he, he understood where journalism was going at a time when, you know, I, I still, you know, lived under the influences of people like Tony Howard. And I always thought you should say, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand, and be reasonable. And I think I think that is what Johnson exploited. That's what he did with Brexit. That's what he's done ever since. He's always been a divisive figure and always played to a hard core. And I think that's what makes him so dangerous. Yeah, I mean, I remember my husband, both, about both Johnson and Trump, saying like, oh, you know, they're not I was saying, oh, they're not even really racist, like necessarily, like they're just saying it because it, it pays the bills. Like saying, and my husband's saying, that's the very definition of racism, Jess, is like that, like, you know, to take down another for yourself. That is the fundamental root of it. Like that, that's worse than people who, or for whatever ridiculous reason about their upbringing or or their their socialisation, have been ma made to fear another another group of people, whether that's women or or black people. He hasn't been socialised like that. He's doing it 
for laughs, money, power, and that that's worse. That that's worse. Uh, and I remember just thinking, you know, he's, he's totally he's totally right. Like to say something you don't even firmly think for the sake of yourself is the well, it's the behaviour of a cad. Um, and we will remember when he was mayor of London, he was affecting to be this liberal, you know. Oh, yeah. And the thing about you and me, whether people agree with us or not, we've at least been consistent to some core beliefs. Geordie Gregg, who went on to be editor of the Daily Mail after Dacre for a while, sadly too, too short a time, he came to the opening of Bloody Difficult Women in London and he said to me, you're a very annoying man in many ways, but at least you've stayed consistent to your views. And he said, you know, at some point, you know, the world will come around to your your way of seeing things, which I don't think is the most outrageously sort of radical view that, you know, we do need some kind of society in this country. We do need to look after each other, as the pandemic showed. And as I, I once said to Boris Johnson at The Telegraph, OK, fine, we go down the route you want to go. Uh, we'll all have lovely, great big houses in Belgravia. We'll have the Maserati outside. But I'll tell you this, on the way from our lovely mansion in Belgravia to the Maserati, somebody's going to knife us to death because our society will collapse and I don't see the point of that nobody wants to live in this country you know we're all better off when we're all better off like, absolutely the maxim to live by that is the maxim that I was raised with and that is what I will and so it's not I'm not saying I don't think people should want to be better off than they are I, I think I, I want to I'm aspirational I want to be richer than I am now I don't think there's anything wrong with that um but I, I, I recognize that we're all better off when we're all better off I mean, I mustn't keep going on about Brexit, but Brexit has been, I've seen it from the start. I saw it at the people at the Telegraph that were propagating it in its sort of embryonic stage. It's been about the redistribution of wealth. It's been the redistribution of wealth from the extremely poor to the extremely rich. And that was what, you know, that is what makes it so fundamentally evil at its core, in my view. Mm, yeah, I mean, and not dissimilar to as well the pandemic. It like for some people, it was just an opportunity to get magnificently rich, uh, whilst others were literally the poorest, were literally dying, and were their bodies were literally stacking up in car parks of religious buildings in my constituency. I was like, uh, whilst some some bloke who used to you know buy and sell earrings from China uh, is made. Yeah, 80 million. I'm like, hang on a minute. <laughs> Something's gone wrong here. And now that we've got this great economic crisis that they've got us into, would it be so awfully rude to ask Dido Harding if she could possibly find a way to finding what she did with that 37 billion? Because I don't know what's happened to it. <laughs> and it would come in awfully handy now. You know, it would be very useful. It certainly would. I do love the way that the uh, pandemic husbands, so the husbands of the both the, the woman who did the vaccine rollout and the woman and Dido Harding's husband both turned on Boris Johnson very 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 severely and i thought oh something's gone wrong something's something's up at mill um yeah that they, they are it is it's a phenomenal the way things i mean that the way things crumble is often the way that the establishment has made it crumble but i think but i do think it's great that it's got people together i mean okay it has divided our country but it's also got people together 
and allowed people to see the good in each other in the way that, you know, possibly they wouldn't have done. I suspect I'd have dif- disappeared into sort of middle-aged obscurity. Everybody would have thought I was a boring Pringle sweater-wearing old Tory who went along with anything. But, you know, you suddenly see, and there were lots of people I had feuds with. There were people like, there was a fellow critic called Mark Shenton. We used to despise each other. And there was another critic, of course, Quentin Letts. I used to get on terribly well with him. Every time now I see Shenton, I'm kind of hugging him and saying what a great guy he is. Joy, every time I see Quentin Letts, it's like somebody you jumped into bed with when you were very young and you slightly regret it and you just talk about the weather and quickly move on and it's sort of it's changed so many dynamics and I think I like to think Anthony Howard would have been happy with the way I p- performed during this 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 time. Interestingly, Robert Harris has exactly the same views as you probably know, and and I think it's great. I think you know clearly this man. I think I like to think we were human beings anyway. Would have taken the view that we did, but I like to think Tony Howard would have approved of the way we'd behaved, and you know we didn't turn out to be the, the awful Daily Mail journalist that he might have thought I was going to be. And so how would you sign off your letter to Tony Howard? Well, I think all of the letters sort of end up really saying thank you. I'd I'd also like to say sort of forgive me. Um, You know, sometimes I could write terrible pieces or be a bit vulgar. Uh, I think he was a bit disappointed I didn't go to university. And I remember telling him once about somebody I knew who'd gone to Magdalene. And he sort of quietly said Maudlin, you know. So I (laughs) I think he would have liked it if I'd been more intellectual and more, you know. But generally speaking, I would like to say, A, forgive Give me, um, but thank you. And I hope you're not too disappointed in, in me. And I'd leave it at that, I think. Otherwise, because he, he always used to say I went on too much and, and, and I could be very boring. And often he'd put a red line through most of the copy I wrote and just say it was too <laughs> tedious. <laughs> and you still love him. I, I think that makes me feel better about when I do that to people. I'm like, this all needs to go. Oh, c- c- you've got to be cruel to be kind. And I think he was. And I could be a terrible bore. Oh, <laughs> how brilliant that you still like him. <laughs> I remember incidentally talking about his time as obituary's editor of the Times. The first thing he did when he got the job, he said, I want to see Rupert Murdoch's obituary. (laughs) Because he just thought this is going to be such a laugh. Needless to say, it was kept under lock and key. And even the editor wasn't allowed to see Rupert Murdoch's obituary. He said, I am the obituary's editor. I'd like to see the obituary, please, just to check it's up to date. Uh, But he wasn't allowed to see it. So it'll be very interesting when when eventually, if indeed, people like that I think he's a vampire if people like that ever die you know it'd be interesting to see what is written about him I um I, I didn't know and most people listening to this won't know and you have just given away this secret I didn't know that our obituaries were already written um I thought that they wrote them quickly when you died and I remember somebody ringing my office to do some sort of fact check thing and I was like can I ask what this is for and they were like it's for your obituary I was like that was 97 <laughs> I mean, I love it because I'm nothing if not sort of vindictive. And there are a lot of people in public life I don't like very much. And Anthony Howard, he said to me, I know you've got some problems with your mortgage. Every single obituary you do for me, you'll get 250 quid. Anyway, I thought of everybody in public life I hated and I'll have the last word. And they don't even know who they are yet. People will be... We'll be reading it in the years ahead and seeing my nasty bitchiness coming out, oh, probably after I'm dead myself. Absolutely brilliant. I loved I had no idea that an obituary was something that, like, you know, was written and, uh, and, and like, updated constantly. I, I, just, I, I just had no... Like, because I suppose I'm from the generation that sort of, like, you know, of Wikipedia, where everything just happens, like, immediately. 
I, I just had no idea, and I think most people have don't realise that that it's somebody's job to write about people as if they're dead when they're not dead, which I think is probably like an interesting discipline for writing. It's a bit like writing a letter. It, oh, it, was, a it, it was money for old rope long before these people had died. I was literally putting the bitch into obituary, and I will <laughs> have my revenge on them. <laughs> Oh man, this is brilliant! Do you get a byline in people's obituary? No, and uh, I've <laughs> I've done it. <laughs> I've done it. Some editors in my time, and it's terrific. You can have a terrible revenge upon them. <laughs> anyway, you don't you don't mess with me. <laughs> that is brilliant. I'm going to be nice to every single journalist I ever come across now for fear of uh, <laughs> the obituary that might get written about me. Ever yearned for the perfect pub to reveal itself from some unexpected alley? Well, The Moon Underwater is the podcast for you. Join me, John Robbins, and the lovely Robin Allender Hi. as we help a special guest create their dream pub. From the drinks behind the bar to the music on the jukebox, The Moon Underwater is whatever you want it to be. So, if you would like to join us in Desire's beating heart, search The Moon Underwater. Or maybe The Moon Underwater will search for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. So the final person I asked you to think about was somebody who had an influence on your life but probably didn't know it. So who was who would that be? There was an actor. I mean, when I was younger, I used to love those Dracula films, those Hammer films, and I revered, I adored Christopher Lee, and I thought he was a, an extraordinarily good and a, an amazing actor. I don't think you should ever meet your heroes in life, and I did get to meet him, and I occasionally had lunch with him, 
I suppose I can say it now, but he took the trouble when he was even when he was having lunch with me to put his toupee on. I don't know whether I don't know. I find toupees fascinating. It was a very complicated toupee that had to be brushed back and everything, and I found him a little bit disappointing, if I'm perfectly honest. Although I, you know, I revered him. I loved his films when I was younger, and you know, it emerged after a while. He was very close to, for instance. Um, I'm about to say George Osborne, but it wasn't. It's even worse than that. It was Michael Gove. And in fact, when the young Michael Gove had made a film where he played a sort of rather sort of strange sort of young priest in a film called A Feast at Midnight, which disappeared without trace, but Christopher Lee was in it and then struck up this kind of friendship. It became clear to me too, he had quite right-wing views. And of course, if you're a Christopher Lee fan, you're also a Peter Cushing fan, because Peter Cushing was always the man who killed him as, as Dracula in the films. And I said, there was a point, I said, looking at your films, where suddenly your name came above Peter Cushing's. And he said very coldly, he said, well, you know, it was I was a more international star. My, my career was going better. I know Peter's uh, wife at the time, Helen, was very upset about it. But he said it quite coldly. I wanted Christopher Lee, I loved him. I wanted to adore him. But ultimately, I found him a bit of a cold fish. But our friendship sort of continued. And I'd see him. And in a strange way, I found him quite reassuring. I could literally say, my entire family have just all been wiped out in a terrible accident. And he'd say to me, well, you may say that. I was up for the part of the butler in Remains of the Day. And they give it to Peter Vaughan. And then he said, oh, I could have been playing the, the Leslie Nielsen part in Airplane. Everything was about his career. But in a strange way, I did learn from that. And he, he did say, you know, he'd made some terrible films, but he said, never be terrible in a terrible film. And I thought, that it, although I don't want to take too much away, you know, from his, his personality into my own personality, he did teach me to be professional. And there have often been times on newspapers or in my career, and I'm just thinking, this is just baloney. This is so beneath me. This is absolute rubbish. But I thought, no, conduct yourself always with dignity. Try and do the best. And, and I suppose that is what I've learned from him. Angela Lansbury said a similar thing once. And she said, oh, I'm so lucky I was born relatively plain, she said, because all the people who were beautiful and so forth, you know, suddenly they weren't working anymore. So she said that never counted against me. But the other thing she, she said, and she worked well into her 90s, still working now, I think, and saw her on stage not long ago in Blythe Spirit, you know, when she was, you know, well into her 80s. And she said, you've always got to treat people with respect. You've always got to be kind to them. And then they will want to work with you again. You know, and it's so tempting to have that hissy fit. It's so tempting to tell somebody what you think about them. But if you do, it it does make it difficult to have ongoing employment. And so I, I, I learned from both of them, I think, a degree of professionalism in hideous circumstances, which I like to think I've tried to keep to. Uh, the idea of Christopher Lee in the lead role of Airplane, literally, <laughs> my brain is splattered across the back of the wall of my conservatory <laughs> where I'm sitting. Like, that seems unfathomable to me. <laughs> I know. I mean, I then read one of the obituaries of him, and there was a very... And I didn't write this one. And they said, apparently, he was talking about his career and his life on a plane, which had just landed on LA, when somebody had had a massive heart attack sitting beside him. And he hadn't even noticed that the person was having a massive heart attack. He was still going on about how he didn't get the part of the butler in Remains of the Day. And... I mean, uh, and other actors seem to have a view on him. I remember talking to Eileen Atkins about him and she said, well, you know, why the hell did they give him a knighthood? Why? And 
people within the acting profession were bemused by it. I suspect it was probably Michael Gove who probably sorted it out and so forth. But he was a survivor and he was, I'm probably going to get into terrible trouble for saying all of this, but I'm genuinely conflicted about him. I wanted him to be nicer and I wanted him to be warmer. I wanted him to share probably my political views. I think, you know, knowing Michael Gove as he did, he was probably massively to the right of of myself. And I... I don't know. All I'd say is never meet your heroes because heroes always disappoint in one way or another. I don't think Angela Lansbury could disappoint me. A, her dad was the leader of the Labour Party, admittedly the only one who suffered a worse time in politics as Jeremy Corbyn, suffered a worse loss for the Labour Party, but still, it, I don't think people realise that, that Angela Lansbury's dad was the leader of the Labour Party. Um, also, I mean, murder she wrote. I mean, I, I watched nothing else but murder she wrote but the entirety of my student years and I don't think she would be disappointing oh no I interviewed her and she was terrific you know and she was very professional and I remember doing an interview too with Rupert Everett and she said he said that when they were doing Bride Spirit together she sort of saw herself as you know sort of I suppose the sort of the, 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 she felt the leading actors should have lunch once a week, and she was what I thought was very touching about her. She was always saying, "Look, there are still ways we can improve this." So she wasn't just going to be, you know, the octogenarian old star that everybody claps. She was thinking, "Let's do this as well as we possibly can," and she was quite critical of people who weren't, you know, professional or weren't up to their game. And again, I think that that's important. I remember a friend of mine called Paul Routledge, and he was the guy, oddly enough, on the Observer, who told me to go and work for the Daily Mail. She said, "He said you need to." toughen yourself up. Interestingly, I'd never done less in my entire career than the 12 years I did at the Daily Mail. We were all like sort of overfed kittens that just sat around all the time doing very little. But he 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 said to me, um, Paul Routledge, he said to me that, um, I can't remember what it was he said to me. It was something quite interesting about professionalism. Um, but it'll come back to me at some juncture. <laughs> um, yeah, the, uh, I'm never, ever going to get over. I mean, I love the film Airplane. I'm now going to go to I'm going to like write a mini series now about Christopher Lee actually getting that part (laughs) that would be uh, I I mean it's the film I quote probably more than any other is when I spill anything I say I've got a drinking problem Um, that is from the film Airplane it is a great film so how would you sign off a letter to Christopher Lee I hope it's that you think that he should have become the butler in Remains of the Dead. I think I'd have to finish it off by saying that. Um, and I, I, I think I'd try to say that I enjoyed his work. I tried to end it generously, um, that I enjoyed his work. Um, there's no shame in being bald-headed, I think I'd perhaps add. But it was touching. I mean, I do You think, I mean, if I was having lunch with you and I was well into my 80s, you wouldn't expect me to have a full head of hair. You wouldn't expect me to put on a toupee to have lunch with you. I'm trying to remember what Paul Routledge said, but I think it was basically that you had to be professional. He was an amusing man. And I, I think I'd asked for a mobile phone and he'd said to me, what's the point giving a, a mobile phone to a man with an immobile arse? I think it was something like that. But again, I think it was professionalism in the most hideous circumstances. And I think we all have to do that. And we've all been through difficult patches in our lives and careers and we we have to somehow keep our dignity yeah i always say to my kids even if it is the shittest job in the world like you turn up on time you offer to do anything and you will always have a job you'll have a job for life if you turn up on time and you say what's next just just stick to that and make the best of it and smile and be be you know be cheerful i mean 
I think Smile is pushing it for my 17-year-old. I mean, he, t- he says to me on days, oh, that was the best day ever, and I think, tell your face. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, I was working with people at the Telegraph, and then sometimes, you know, they'd be doing work experience, and one I had one in once, and they were saying something like, I said, well, what are you doing next week? He said, I'm going off to Sky. And I said, well, what's it? What, what, that'll be fun. He said, oh, I have to get up at five in the morning. It's about 18 tube stops. And I said, look, mate, it's an acting role. You know, work is an acting role. Of course you're thinking I have to get up at five. It's 18 tube stops. But you have to pretend to be enthusiastic about it. And particularly with your kids, you should say, once they're in an office environment, you have to smile continually. And the worse the job is, the more you should say, oh, how wonderful it is and how enthusiastic it is. And we all we all have days when we can't really face it, but we have to somehow smile and look optimistic. I think that that is so right, though. Like, oh, we have a lot of work experience kids in, and you remember the ones with gloomy faces, and you think, God, they were rubbish. Even if they were perfectly proficient at all the tasks you gave them, you're like, God, they were like a wet weekend. Uh, like, that, that is your memory of them. Whereas the ones who aren't even necessarily that proficient, but are cheery, you're like, oh, get them back. They were good. <laughs> I think that's the main thing. I do think... It- being upbeat and, and cheerful, often in the most hideous circumstances, can keep a career going long beyond its natural its natural time. There was a guy at the mail, I remember his name, I think he was called Niels Rindales, and I remember somebody said to me, to me, he always laughed loudest. When the editor cracked a joke, he would always make sure he laughed loudest. The editor would love him because he'd laughed at the joke, and I think you can literally laugh your way to the top in life, to be honest. Uh, yeah, 100%. <laughs> Definitely. I spend all my time talking about domestic abuse and sexual violence, and I'm really cheerful. So you, you, you can do it. It's possible. Um, well, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Tim. Thank you so much for sharing uh, your brilliant people with us. They are quite the host of characters. I would quite like to go to an imaginary dinner party with these people. Uh, they, they I, I think it would be very, very, very amusing to be at dinner with them all. They'd never um, get a word in edgeways. Christopher Lee would be talking about the butler in the reigns <laughs> of the day. <laughs> Tony, Howard, Tony Howard would fall asleep and my mother would probably start being rather rude after a while. I think it would end quite quickly, that dinner, unfortunately. <laughs> Okay, well, you know, I don't like a dinner that goes on, so that's good. Um, <laughs> One thing he it, did tell me, in fact, there was Roger Moore, I'm a terrible name dropper here. Roger Moore <laughs> said that Christopher Lee had sent him all of the opera that he'd put onto a, 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 a disc. And he phoned, and Christopher Lee said, I, Roger Moore phoned me up about it. And he said, no, it's Roger Moore that told me this. Roger Moore said he phoned up Christopher Lee and he said, you know, this D- DVD you sent me, of CD of all your you singing opera, it's so useful. And every time my friends come round, I put it on. And Christopher Lee said, oh, that's wonderful and he said yes because i like to go to bed at 11 and sometimes they won't go i put your opera on and they all head off immediately christopher <laughs> <laughs> oh christopher Lee, what a character who knew <laughs> <laughs> exactly well jess a great pleasure i've enjoyed myself very much oh it's my pleasure honestly thank you so much for coming on keep being you Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips. If you want to hear more conversations just like this, make sure you follow Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips on the podcast provider of your choice. And why not write a letter to your friends telling them all about this podcast? You could also follow us on social media. We're at Jess Phillips Pod. Goodbye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.